0: Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I am Director of ECFR and this week we are going to be talking about why we are seeing more humanitarian crises than ever before. No matter where we look, whether it's uh, Afghanistan, Yemen or Ethiopia, the situation of the world's poorest seems to be getting worse rather than better. And I'm very happy to welcome David Miliband, the president and chief executive officer of the International Rescue Committee, former UK foreign secretary. And I think one of the the big thinker practitioners when it comes to the way the world is run uh, to this podcast. Thanks a lot for joining me, David. Thank
1: you, Mark. Very good, not just to be with you, but to be back with you since I think this is my, I'm a
0: recidivist.
1: Uh, world in 30 minutes uh, participant.
0: Indeed that is true Um, and David you gave a really interesting lecture at the end of last year at the Council on Foreign Relations um, in which you argued that what we're seeing now are not a series of disparate problems around the world but rather a, a bigger system failure and you warn that humanitarian emergencies are only gonna get better, sorry, only gonna get worse if we carry on neglecting their 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 causes and ignoring the, the systemic problems which are at the root of all of these um, uh, tragedies which seem to be erupting all over the world. Can you maybe start by, by talking about what you mean by system failure?
1: Yes, I think it's really um, great to have the chance to try and discuss this with you. My argument, simply put, is not just that there are more poor because some of the policies aren't being pursued with enough vigor or there isn't enough aid going around. There's something more serious happening when in the top 20 humanitarian crisis countries, nearly a third of the population, 274 million out of 800 million people are in humanitarian need. And when the explanatory variables that have traditionally been used Uh, whether that be the failure of markets, whether that be uh, climate effects, whether that be most recently COVID, don't do sufficient for explaining why there should be this explosion in humanitarian need, especially in places that are suffering conflict, because now more than 50% of the world's extreme poor are living in conflict states, not just poor states. And when we published our international rescue committee emergency watch list in december in the run-up to it we had a lot of discussion about what was really going on and we think this is not normal and we came to the conclusion that the thesis we wanted to put out there is that that there is system failure at four levels what was the system the system simply defined was that rich countries would give money to poor countries who give it to poor people and that would make them less poor Uh, the system failure that we're seeing is at four levels first states are failing in their responsibilities to their own citizens not just sins of omission bureaucratic systems that don't get money to the poor but sins of commission bombing their own citizens uh, cutting off aid from their own citizens. so there's state failure secondly there's diplomatic failure it's pretty extraordinary if i if i'd asked you mark before you'd Read the lecture, how many civil wars are going on at the moment? Maybe because you're an extremely well informed person, you'd have said, Oh, I know there are 55, and there are eight of them that count as severe because there's more than a thousand battle deaths. But not many people would have known that. And so the second failure we diagnose is diplomatic failure, more civil wars going on for longer uh, than any time since the end of the Cold War. Uh, Third, legal failure. One of the things that I think is interesting about humanitarian conflict situations is that the rights of civilians are clearer than in many other aspects. Geneva Conventions, UN Charter, et cetera, protect civilians on paper, but they're not living on paper. They're living in the real world where the rights to life, the rights to humanitarian aid are being flouted. Uh, We've talked about that before as the age of impunity that I've talked about. And then fourthly, there's operational failure. The humanitarian systems can't get to people in need, And they're ill-designed in some ways for the kind of extreme poverty over extended periods that we're now seeing. The the emergency system conveys the idea of an ambulance rather than the idea of um, building better fences at the top of the cliff. And so there is operational failure as well as the humanitarian system, which has more or less doubled in financial capacity in the last decade, but faces numbers of people that have tripled in the last decade in needing their help in much more complex situations with non-state actors abusive states etc so system failure is a, is a profound allegation really and it's a, a call to the wider community policy community foreign policy community to recognize that what's going on in conflict zones in some ways is the tip of a, of a larger iceberg about the way the international system the multilateral system is failing and that's why i mean we'll get a chance to talk about this no doubt but we don't think you can solve the problems of the humanitarian aid system with just by humanitarian aid we think you have to think broader uh, to geopolitics um and we can we can get to that but in the same way that general de gaulle said that um war is too important to be left to generals we're sort of saying that humanitarian need is is, is too big an issue just to be left to the humanitarians
0: so what you're before we go into some of the things which have taken us to where we are at the moment and you look at some of the drivers of of each of those system failures in your lecture and I'd like to go through them in a more systematic way but maybe just dwell for a second on your on your sense that there was a system and that it's now gone because I think in most people's minds you know we live in the best of all possible worlds there have never been so many people being educated living in democracies um, the sorts of systems that you're that you're talking about, a lot of them are very new. You know, you talk about the age of impunity now, but for most of human history, <laughs> there was no idea of, of there being international law to protect people's um, uh, rights, etc. Is your sense that after the end of the Cold War, it was possible to build an international system, and that that is now fraying as geopolitics returns, or are you saying that things have got worse? Um, than they were, um, uh, you know, uh, before the, 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 the Cold War that in some ways we're going back even further to, to, in, uh, to pre-Cold War, um, more kind of anarchic um, world.
1: Well, just to be absolutely clear, I'm not saying there was a golden age because that's the easy thing that people say, oh, you're saying so there was a golden age either in the unipolar world or in the Cold War. No, I'm not blind to that. Uh, at all there was no golden age but i do make the claim that what is happening now is more reminiscent of the pre-1945 period than even the 19 the the organized ordered conflict of the um, of the cold war and i think that if you want to date when things started to get worse it's interesting around 2005-6 the indicators both of democratic health around the world uh, on the one hand and of humanitarian um need around the world um uh, impunity started to go in the wrong direction you'll know the freedom house and colonist intelligence unit university of gothenburg studies about democratic democracy studies. and it's interesting that you say you know well most of the world lives in democratic, no actually less than 15 percent of the world live in what these agencies classify as fully democratic uh, states Um, There's a democratic recession, as you you know, but also the impunity that's suffered by civilians in war seems to have taken a turn in 2005-06 as well. That's more or less the age. Now, that's not to say that between 1990 and 2005-06, things were fine. Obviously, Rwanda, Srebrenica, etc. But there was a brief shining moment when the ideas um, in the UN Charter that state sovereignty had to be protected, but so did the rights of individuals, universal rights. There was a moment when that seemed like a realistic uh, policy debate. You will remember the responsibility to protect and all of that in 2000, in the early 2000s. So I think that um, what we are seeing now though is a very serious reversion that I think is driven by um, more or less, I think three factors are at the heart of this. The first, is this extraordinary um, number, duration, and virulence of so called civil war, which essentially we put down to the internationalization of conflict, where in Syria or South Sudan or Yemen or Libya, you have six, 12, 18 different countries, never mind non state actors working in Yemen, now dozens and dozens and dozens of different non state uh, actors? Uh, secondly, you've got the, the fragmentation of global power so that uh, states um, are um, feeling able to uh, really do their own thing. Um, and the, the, there's a power vacuum, I think, in the global system. And then thirdly, and these three points intersect, I think. They overlap. I'm very interested also in how the idea of the sovereignty of states, which is written into the UN Charter, is now being used as a shield against the the second aspect of the UN Charter, which is the rights of individuals. It's a shield against accountability. And if you look at the states that are saying, no, we don't want UN inspectors, we don't want uh, international experts, we don't want uh, accountability mechanisms, they're using the arguments of sovereignty, which of course are used by so-called populists in Western democratic states as well, to say we're gonna keep the world out and these are these foreign ideas of universal rights and not something for us. I think those three drivers fit together to create this, what I would claim in some ways is a pre-1945 situation.
0: So that's fascinating picture that you're telling. I mean, it'd be good to to maybe that you're painting. Can we just maybe go a bit deeper on some of these things? I mean, the first thing you talk about on the internationalization of civil conflicts is, fascinating but it does feel in some ways more like a return to to cold war dynamics where you had countries piling into these peripheral parts of the world and you know proxy wars going on in places like angola and um you know all sorts of countries found their 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 politics blighted and ripped apart in particularly in Latin America and in in um, in Africa um, and to a, a degree in the Middle east um, and, and these things are starting to to happen again but the number of people who get killed by war you know it's every single person is a tragedy but it's quite low in historical terms I and mean, if you look at the last 15 years about hundred thousand people I mean it depends on which academic uh, definition of of, uh, of a conflict death you You take, but it's many less people than, um, but yeah, if you look at it in historical terms, depending on what definition you have of a conflict death, um, there's roughly been about 100,000 people dying a year for the last 15 years or so. Um, is it that that's just the tip of the iceberg and there's a huge amount of, of suffering beyond that? Or is it the, the number of conflicts that are going on? What, what is it that... I think my contention, I, I'm making three contentions,
1: I think. One, that extreme poverty is increasingly con- concentrated in conflict states. Secondly, those conflict states are marked by external interference that is far more variegated than simply the bipolar... Um, Cold War model. It's not as simple as there's an American side and a, and a Chinese side um, or, or an American side and a Russian side. Um, and then thirdly, uh, there is this point that 70% of deaths in war are now of civilians, which I think yeah. is a is a change. And obviously there were unspeakable horrors of the Cold War as well. But what I think um, strikes me about the current situation is that this is not ordered, organized standoff. Uh, This has got a dynamic of its own in the different places, whether you look at the Horn of Africa, uh, whether you look at Yemen, uh, whether you look at frozen conflict now in Syria, whether you look at the prospects in Afghanistan, this is the presence of non-state actors. I mean, there's an extreme figure that I put in my um, lecture, which quotes the International Committee on the Red Cross saying that 60 to 80 million people in the world are living under the governance of non-state actors. Now, there's an argument about how much of the Afghan um, population were included in that figure, which was pre-August this year. But nonetheless, the presence of significant non-state actor presence, you can see this in northeast Nigeria. You can see it in Syria. You can see it uh, increasingly in uh, parts of the Sahel. Um, You can see it in Afghanistan, where the challenge to the Taliban is from Islamic State. Uh, th- that's an additional new factor that I think is important in this, in this context.
0: One other really interesting question is the, the one that you raised about the balance between universal rights and national sovereignty. I mean, I um, was a big supporter of, of the responsibility to protect and the idea of, of stopping states from, from shielding horrendous human rights abuses behind the protection of so-called national sovereignty and seeing sovereignty as something which which is um, not an absolute right to whoever's running a country, but something that you have to earn by looking after your citizens and that you have a duty of care for them. But many people outside the West would argue that these assertions of universal rights were abused by Western countries uh, to carry out all sorts of interventions often um, uh, pushing the limits of, of international law and that it's a healthy rebalancing of the system and that maybe what we're complaining about is not so much an age of impunity, but it's more the fact that, that the West is no longer able to, to see its uh, its interests and its writ, read in other places. How would you well, respond to that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's really important to take on that um, argument uh, because I think it's... Um, It's wrong, but not because the West is somehow pure in this. I I live and work in America, even though I'm a fierce European Brit. um, The Americans are as neuralgic about interference on their sovereignty, I mean, as many others. So the the idea that there's a kind of um, a Western ease about this, I think, is wrong. Europeans, I think, are in a very different uh, place. And there's a very good piece by Angela Stent in the Foreign Affairs last week about how the Russians would like a world where, where the sovereignty of China, Russia, and America is on a different um, plane than those of smaller states. And I mean, there's, quite, there's a crowd in America which um, quite likes that too. I mean, even on the UN conventional law of the sea, they won't put it into law, even though they follow it. So there's a, there's a desperate fear of being trammeled um, there. Secondly, Remember, there's a big claim in China now, Rana Mitter has written about this, that they were present at the creation of the post-1945 system and that their ideas shouldn't be neglected, even though it was obviously pre-1949 and pre-the People's Republic. Um, but I think that, um, it, it, and, and, I, and it's worth saying, uh, that the West has got abuses to its name, so there's no, there's no purity there but i do think this is really important because the world has become more interdependent in the last 20 years um and the danger is that the ideas of universal rights become less applicable and that i think is is very very dangerous so yes there is misbehavior on the the charge sheet against the West, but two wrongs don't make a right. And I think it's really important that um, at a time when, in some ways, the rise of illiberal democracy um, in some Western countries threatens rights of people in our own countries, that that needs to be called out. But it also needs to be called out that the idea of sovereignty as a shield against rights that are meant to be instantiated in humanitarian, in international law, is completely unacceptable and dangerous.
0: So... Um, one of the reasons I was very keen to talk to you is because you're not uh, an academic who simply um, analyzes what's wrong with the world. You realize um, that the point is is to change it. And that's maybe the most difficult question. When we are confronted with this system failure and you see these big geopolitical changes that you're talking about, um, and it, you know, a lot of the agency that we as Westerners certainly felt we had in the early, more optimistic um, years of this century, seems to be frittering away um, and being pushed back in in every single part of the world. What do you think um, can be done about the system failure? Is it possible to, Uh, to save the system when there is no real international community worthy of its name that that is trying to uphold it?
1: Well, as they say in America, that's a great question. And the uh, the danger is that you say that's a great question the answer. Um, But look, let me have a a stab at an answer. Uh, First of all, if you can put in your show notes uh, a link to the lecture I gave and to the the IRC emergency watch list, people can quickly see I've got a bucket of thoughts about how the humanitarian system should be improved, upgraded, um, to do with how spending is focused, to do with how we respond to COVID, to building climate resilience. And I have some thoughts about um, how some of the politics can be patched up. Um, the French have a proposal to suspend the veto in cases of mass atrocity in the UN Security Council. I support that. Uh, there are. I've got an idea about an international body for the Promotion and Protection of Humanitarian acts. In the same way that we have a body for the prevention of the use of chemical weapons. So uh, there are some ideas, but underpinning them, I think, is a strategic question, which is can the system be rebooted? Can it be saved, in other words? And if the answer to that, and I think my speech is partly for reasons of length, my lecture is a bit guilty of working within. The system, but I, I, I'd say two things. First of all, I see no prospect of getting a better statement of the balance of. I, I see no prospect of any renegotiation of Geneva Conventions or other UN charters as producing progress. So I think as a benchmark we should hang on to them. Secondly, I think that. Um, there is real prospect or there's real need to mobilize what I've called in other contexts countervailing power against system failure. And that countervailing power can come from civil society, private sector, uh, not just from government. I think my my lecture focuses more inside the governing government system and or the intergovernmental system. And I think that that's uh, something that um, shouldn't become uh, myopic. And my own view is that um, there's a desperate need for uh, European countries, because this, I think, is the most, uh, offers real prospect, but there are, there, there are real allies around the world who do buy the argument that this interdependent world needs to manage its global commons far more successfully. And I'm, I'm very struck that we need coalitions of the willing, which is an unfortunate phrase and has bad resonance, but um, those who are willing to defend the, co- the common realm need to work together, whether it be defending democracies against cyber attack, whether it be exposing war crimes, as the German civil society organizations did with the German government, prosecuting a Syrian general, successfully prosecuting a Syrian general under universal jurisdiction um, recently, Uh, or whether it be creating a, a shadow international body for the protection of humanitarian access. If we just rely on the system to fix itself, then that won't work. But that doesn't mean we should throw out our ambitions that are laid out at the heart of the system.
0: How do you see the intersection between these tectonic changes which are taking place in terms of the the balance of power in the world? The fact that many countries are um, trying to fill the space which the U.S. is leaving as it shifts its attention towards its competition with China in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and others are, uh, you know, trying to reclaim national sovereignty. I mean, you know, going in exactly the opposite direction from that, which I think we, w- we were collectively going, you know, 15, 20 years ago uh, at the time when the responsibility to protect came in, where countries in a way who've never felt sovereign before because they were colonized, because they didn't have much geopolitical space because of the Cold War or the unipolar order are now Um, desperate to assert themselves on, on the world stage I mean it feels like the the a lot of the energy which you're calling on for these countervailing forces are happening in in countries which are becoming less important and less central to the way that the world's working and aren't necessarily being matched by or maybe they are maybe this is my myopia but are they being matched by um you know civic mobilizations in in the global south in um some of the the newly empowered countries that are filling the space which uh which the west is leaving behind in different parts of the world well it's
1: i mean look you can tell a very depressing picture about democratic recession and the rest of it if you want to tell the alternative picture you'd say you you take an example like the african mobilization around covid where the fury at the failure of the international system to quote unquote deliver it should not be underestimated and where there really is i think you use the word mobilization mark there is a mobilization that is national that is local that is also trans uh, pan-african about notably through the african cdc the center for disease control um there's a real passion to build resilience uh, from within. And that means the sharing of sovereignty as well as the assertion of sovereignty. And it means the assertion of justice as well and demands for justice as well as the the demands for action. And so I think that it's a very, um, there's real, there's real flux. You know, we're having this conversation now. Two weeks ago, we might have had a different view of the situation on Ukraine um, where I think the US has played a, a strong role in the last couple of weeks. And I think Secretary Blinken's speech in Berlin may come to be seen as an important uh, turning point in this, in, in, in the trajectory of this potential conflict. We'll see, I may be proved wrong in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but I, I think that, that there's, there's many shifting tides. What I think is important is to try to identify what those tides are and then to ask what can be done to influence them. Your your power map that the uh, power atlas that the ECFR produced, I really think was an excellent uh, piece of work. And in a way, it's a companion to what I'm saying. You're identifying some of the underlying forces as well. Uh, I'm trying to get into how you you influence them. And I I would like to see a much more robust European um, set of actions in this field, not least because I think what's happening in the humanitarian area is not just the area that I work in. I do think this tip of the iceberg argument is important. Because if you can't sustain the the most basic rights that are enumerated in the most black and white terms in international law, how on earth can you sustain wider political, economic and other freedoms? And so I think that's the that's an argument that I'd like to prosecute as well.
0: So we'll definitely put a link up to your lecture and you can see many of the great ideas that David puts forward about um, rebooting the humanitarian system. But as we come to the end of our time, I wouldn't mind just dwelling a bit more on what seems to be a massive system failure here in the European neighbourhood, where we have a a system of of European security, a European security order, which is being rewritten as we speak. And it brings to to the forefront some of the uh, points that you're you're making, but in very concrete terms, and it'd be interesting to see what advice you have to people who are, who are trying to negotiate that. Because on the one hand, it's a bit like what you were saying about the global system, that it's unlikely that we're going to negotiate a better set of norms, like whether it's Paris or Helsinki or other things, to, under, uh, to underline um, the, the rules of the road for, for, for European security. But at the same time, um, we have a big problem that Russia no longer feels bound by those rules that it's signed up to. And the US um, is also not willing to play the, the role that it once did um, as the sort of sole um, custodian of, of that order, isn't willing to impose it by force. And that's why um, things are, have become so muddied. On the one hand, there's an attempt to deter behavior, to, to raise the costs of undermining those principles, to restate them. But at the same time, um, it, you know there is a concession uh, that we need to talk about these rules if one of the big parties to european security um, feels so unhappy about it that it's willing to use military force to, to to undermine it that creates a problem for all of us whether or not what it's doing is is legal or moral or can be justified the fact that it's happening means that 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 order doesn't exist anymore, and that the system is failing. What What do you think um, uh, Europeans should be doing? Europeans who are conspicuously absent from um, from the the tables where these discussions are, are taking place. Um, and how do you think Biden should um, and and Blinken and, and his team um, take this forward as as um, uh, the situation uh, becomes uh, ever more pressing and and, and, and scarier?
1: Well, you're right to raise it. And if I may say so, there's there's an additional element which speaks to my system failure argument, which is that uh, the consequences of 2014, uh, two two million people internally displaced in Ukraine have never been properly addressed, 14,000 dead, too late um, for them. Uh, The one point I'd pick you up on is it's an attempt to rewrite the rules of European security. It's not yet a rewriting of the rules of European security. And the Angela Stent piece that I referred to Um, about what Putin is thinking um, and how we should understand it speaks to this third attempt to rewrite the rules of European uh, security. Now, um, we've only got you know, never mind the world in 30 minutes, we got the world in 30 seconds, so, it, it, or at least this part of the world in 30 seconds, but what comes into my mind, first, we have to get our story straight, and there is a revisionist history that is being written of the attempt by, that this alleges an attempt by NATO to encircle Russia, which is rubbish in my view, and we have to get our story straight, that independent states chose their own futures, and they chose their future um, in the European Union in some cases, in applications to NATO in other cases, um, because they wanted a partnership with the West, but not thereby to make them enemies of Russia. As I pointed out on TV the other day, George Kennan said that Russia's tragedy is to look at its neighbors and always see that they must either be a vassal or an enemy. That's not been our position, the Western position. Our position has been we want partnership with the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, but they can have partnerships with Russia too, and that applies to Ukraine as well. Secondly, we have to get our defences in place. You said there's the prospect of a hot war. There's been cold war on the cyber field already. And so the defences need to be in place. Easier said than done, but but possible. The assets need to be aligned. And here, Europe's energy um, foresight is being tested very, very strongly in ways that you've discussed and written about and uh, and published on uh, as well. But it seems to me that uh, figuring out our political relationship with Russia is not going to be possible without figuring out our energy relationship with Russia. And the fact that President Putin has more or less endorsed uh, Prime Minister Orban in uh, Moscow uh, yesterday um, is rather speaks rather to this uh, point. And then finally, I do think Europe has to uh, recognize that there's a transatlantic element to this. Part of Russia's paranoid syndrome is wanting to be treated as a global uh, super has an economy. And I think that the Americans are important in that way. You're right, I think, to point out how America's got its eyes turning in a different direction. But I don't think America, as the last few weeks have shown, America doesn't want to give up on Europe. and, And this administration sees the importance of its alliances. And so I think there's an important European element to that as well. There's a global geopolitical element. And we should be making sure that the Chinese are made to answer the country which preaches non-interference in internal affairs till it's blue in the face is turning a blind eye to a threatened interference in internal affairs here of a very significant kind. And so uh, there, there's a level of global engagement that's important to this, too. I don't pretend any of that is original, but that's that's what comes into my mind as I think about the challenge for Europe now.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, we'll definitely be coming back to those topics in future weeks. We've cut almost out of time on this podcast. There's one thing left to do before we end, though, which is our, our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, David? Oh, I, I, That's
1: interesting you should ask me that. I, I had this vague memory that you, um, <laughs> that you asked me this last time, but I've done no prep about this. So I'm reading a book about the history of cricket, um, which is sort of sends me to sleep each night. It is called, yeah, "Cricketing Lives: A Characterful History from Pitch to Page" by Richard Thomas. Uh, so I'm um, reading that. I bought Mariana Mazzucato's recent book called "Mission Economy," which I haven't yet um, had a chance to read. But one of the good things about COVID, uh, the only the only good thing is, that it's allowed me to read more books. It's allowed me to read you. you Read your book. This allowed me to read Martin Indyk's remarkable book about the uh, Henry Kissinger's uh, diplomacy um, in 1973, 74, 75. Um, so it's given me a, a chance to have various windows on the on the world. But those are the kind of things I. I mean, on my bookshelf, suggest that they're, they're all done. Um, and some of them are, but uh, the cricket book is still, still in motion. It's for five pages a night and it's rather comforting.
0: Wonderful. An Englishman in New York. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please uh, subscribe to it on whatever platform you've used to download it. And while you're there, if you fancy giving us a positive review and a five-star rating, we'll be very grateful. But for now, from David Millerband and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this episode is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is... Chris Eichberger.